A contagious faith is one you just can't keep to yourself. You have to share it. It's infectious. It's going to spread to other people. My hope is that as the message of contagious faith gets to church members and whole congregations, that they'll all realize they have a part to play in spreading the good news of Christ, but they can do it in ways that fit them. Every one of us has a natural contagious faith style, and we want to help them discover it. I think these five contagious faith styles, the friendship building style, the selfless serving style, the story sharing style, the reason giving style, and the truth telling style really flow naturally out of the pages of the Bible. Uh, when we open the pages of scripture, we see that they didn't all share their faith the same way. And we see biblical examples of all of these. We also see Jesus doing these. And what we do is just take those principles and apply them into our lives and say, how can we follow those models to reach the people in our world today? Good morning, I am Mark Middleberg, and I'm thrilled to be with you again today. I was here yesterday for a session in the morning, and we met with some of the leaders last night. I met many of you. I got to say, I already feel very much at home. I uh, kind of feel like I've got my West Virginia church home figured out whenever I'm in this area. I, I love uh, being with you folks, and I just thank you so much for the warm welcome. I also want to say I love the worship so far. Uh, I go, I visit a lot of churches, I speak a lot of places, and there's a lot of churches with good worship, but what I sensed here was so real and genuine and biblical. I, in a lot of ways, feel like we got a great biblical message already, and I hope you feel that way. And yeah, let's thank the team. I love the focus on the gospel, the, the blood of Christ shed for us. I mean, the the central message of how we find forgiveness. Uh, but I want to ask a, a question you don't often hear in church. And that is, is it true? And if it is, how do we know it's true? Now, if you're a good Bible student, maybe you've been part of the church a long time, you're going, well, is it true? Of course it is. The Bible's the inspired word of God, 2 Timothy 3.16, we know that all scripture is inspired and given for teaching and so forth, um, and maybe other verses come to your mind, and I'll just let you, you know, rest at ease. I agree with those verses, I agree with the biblical teaching, but what I want to do today is a little unusual for most church services, and that is I want to ask the question of how do we know and what is truth, knowing that we live in a culture that increasingly distrusts the Bible, uh, distrusts the church, distrusts religious leaders. And for many people in the culture, you say, well, of course we know it's true. Here's the Bible verse. They go, but I don't believe the Bible. Or I'm not sure what I think of the Bible. I, I, you know, that doesn't prove anything to me. Well, what I would like to do, and I'm going to do it actually in three parts today, the, this morning and then the next session, I'm going to go to more of it. Tonight, I'll finish that teaching, and then we're going to open the mic you know, for Q&A, and uh, I'll, I'll come back to talking about that in a little bit. But what I want to do is give you a bunch of reasons why you can be confident that Christianity is true, that the Bible's a reliable source, that it is God's revelation. And I think we have great reasons to believe it, 
But again, you can't assume just because we have reasons or kind of know in our heads or maybe in our hearts that we believe it's true. That doesn't necessarily transfer to the guys at work or the classmates that you talk to, you know, around the locker uh, or the neighbors or sometimes even family members, right? So what do you say to them when they say, I don't believe the Bible? Well, let me give you some reasons why this makes sense. Let me give you some evidence. And that's what I want to do. And I'm going to mostly in this first session today uh, talk out of the area of science. Because, you know, people who don't believe the Bible often will believe science. They'll go, you know, that, now that's real truth right there. You know, that's how we know things today is science. Uh, and so rather than argue with that, I'll say, okay, well, then let's talk science. Um, but I, I do want to show you a picture that I think is a pretty good portrait of the culture that we live in increasingly. Now, this picture is from overseas. Uh, it's from London, England. But it, I think it's a picture of what we're seeing increasingly here in the U.S. as well. Uh, this was a few years back, and it, it was in London, England. A bunch of the skeptics and uh, infidels and all, whatever they call themselves, free thinkers and so forth, said, you know, let's get together some money and let's put a message, you know, in London, they've got the big buses with the, lots of real estate on the sides of the buses. They said, let's do an ad campaign to kind of inform and maybe straighten out all those superstitious religious types, and let's give them a little dose of truth. And they did it, and they uh, put, bought the signs, and they put them on the buses, and uh, you can see it most clearly here in the middle. Uh, here's what the sign says. There's probably no God. And by the way, I just got to stop here. I got to congratulate them for saying probably. <laughs> they're not certain. You know, they, they have a little faith, don't they? they they're, they're taking a little leap of faith here. They're not, probably, but we're pretty sure enough to put signs on these buses. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying about it and enjoy your life from your friendly atheists. And uh, that, they put that all over. It got a lot of attention and, uh, you know, made the press. That's where I found this. On, I got it off of Google. And again, I just thought that's a pretty good picture of the culture that we're talking to and maybe of some of the friends and coworkers and neighbors and perhaps family members that you talk to as well. So what do you say to them. And what I want to do is, is start, as I already said, start with science. And what I'm going to do, you may wonder what this chart is up here for. This is going to continue through the whole day. I'm going to give you 20 reasons. By the way, you know, sermons, are, a good sermon is usually a three-part sermon, or maybe a real good sermon's four-part. Well, I'm going to give you a 20-part sermon. It's going to be awesome. Um, isn't that great? Yeah, 20 parts. Um, and I'm going to have to kind of feed you with a fire hose as we go through this because there's a lot of information. And if at some point, you know, I, ho I hope you can stay for all three sessions, uh, stay for the 11 o'clock service and come back at 6. And I'll, let me just say something about that as well. Especially tonight, I hope you will bring friends that are asking you these questions. And even someone who ridicules your faith or, or likes to buttonhole you at work or whatever, Bring them, call them this afternoon and say, you know those questions you're always throwing at me or your objections or your reasons you don't believe? Well, we got this guy at, at the church who's going to be there at six tonight and you get to ask the first questions. 
Okay, so bring your friends. Bring those with doubts. Uh, bring those that are just kind of fuzzy-eyed. They're confused. They're going, does it, does it really make sense? Um, don't just throw a Bible verse at me. Give me reasons. We'll come, bring them back tonight. I'll finish giving reasons, and then we're going to do a Q&A as well tonight. But what I'm going to give you is what I call 20 Arrows of Truth, and these are based on my book uh, called Confident Faith. You know, it's reasons that you can reinforce and, and really shore up your beliefs based on all these areas, like science and philosophy and history and archaeology and things related to the life, death, and burial and resurrection of Jesus and uh, the changed lives of the disciples and so on. I'm kind of giving you a preview here. But we're going to go through these one by one. And the first four, what I'm going to handle in this service, and these are more science and, and kind of physical observation of the physical world kinds of uh, arguments. And so here's our first arrow. And here's the way we put it, is that design in the universe points to an intelligent designer. And a lot of people don't think about this, but they, they kind of notice the beauty and the design, and, and they're going, what, what a great cosmic mistake, but it looks good, you know? And I'm going, you know what? We ought to rethink that. Where you see design, there's probably a designer behind it. You see a beautiful painting, there's probably a great painter behind it. You see great art, there's an artist. Well, when you see design in the universe, there's Probably a designer behind it. Uh, that's where logic would take us. And this argument, you know, actually goes all the way back to Scripture. Uh, it's used in Scripture. Psalm 19.1, the psalmist David said, the heavens declare the glory of God. And, and he goes on and explains it in those first verses in Psalm 19. It's like the, the heavens are speaking to us. And their voice is clear. They, they are telling us that there's a great designer be, behind the design you see in the sky. This became popular in about the 1800s. There was a guy who was a natural theologian, which was an early word for a scientist. Uh, back in the 1800s, a guy named William Paley. You've probably heard his argument. He said, you know, if you're walking along a path and you see something on, on the ground, and you reach down, you pick it up, and you realize it's a watch. And you look at it, and it's working, and it's ticking, and the time is right. And you, you look at this, you go, that didn't happen by itself. And that's just a natural, you can't help but think that. You, you look at it, you go, watches don't create themselves. These things don't, this isn't a cosmic accident. You don't pick up a watch and go, praise the cosmos. You know, look what happened all by itself. Uh, you know better. And the classic phrase is, watches need watchmakers. And everyone kind of knows that. In fact, I, I, gotta, I get, get a kick out of a quote. You've heard of Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, the Oxford professor, probably the most outspoken atheist in the world. Uh, he has a book called The Blind Watchmaker. And uh, I put this quote in here. This is page one of this book. This famous atheist says, biology is a study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. It's like, you think? And he later goes on, he sometimes even uses uh, the term overwhelmingly give you the sense that they were designed. 
But then, of course, he had to spend the rest of his book trying to talk you out of what's obviously true. And that's what he does. He tries to convince you. And, and he, he believes in the blind watchmaker. And what he does is talks about natural selection as if that has the, all the characteristics of a god without being a god, and it's a blind watchmaker. And he, he tries to find natural ways to substitute for God. But I want to go back to what I think is more obvious, and that is, you see the watch, you know there's got to be a watchmaker. And a lot of you probably have a watch on, do you? Uh, take a look at your watch if you have one, or maybe the person's next to you. Uh, that watch needs a watchmaker, but here, I want to point out something. If you look about an inch or two beyond the watch at your wrist, guess what? That wrist is more complex than the wrist watch. There's more design in your wrist. By the way, I'm speaking from experience. I tore a ligament in my right wrist a few years ago, and I paid a lot of money to a doctor, and guess what he did? He tried to get, get it back to the original design. That's all he did. You think about doctors. Think about surgeons. They, they're you know, highly educated people. They get a lot of money to try to imitate nature. And it's not really just nature, it's design. They're trying to get back to what the designer did in the first place in many, many cases. At least that was true of my wrist, and it took a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of healing. It's pretty good now. But there is design in your wrist, and if a watch needs a watchmaker, then a wrist needs a wrist maker. And let me get a little carried away here. Let's go further than just your wrist uh, get out a microscope. You don't have to do this right now. You can do this when you get home. Get out a microscope and look closer at your wrist or any part of your body. Get down, you know, magnified to the cellular level. And guess what? One cell in your body shows more complex design than your wrist or your watch. It's mind-blowing. And I want to give you a quote, and I love this because it's from a non-believer, a molecular biologist who doesn't accept the Bible, doesn't really know how that design got there in the cell, but he describes, his name's Dr. Michael Denton, and uh, in his book, he talks about this. He says, uh, to grasp the reality of life as it has been revealed by molecular biology we must magnify a cell a thousand million times until it, is, uh, it appears to be like 20 kilometers in diameter and resembles a giant airship large enough to cover a great city like London or New York City. A lot of us have seen that movie. Remember that? You know, with the big spaceship over New York? And it's like this vast thing. It's big. He's saying magnify a cell till it looks that big. And then he goes on and says, what, what will you see when you magnify it that way? He said, what we will then see is an object of unparalleled complexity and adaptive design. On the surface of the cell, we could see millions of openings like the portholes of a vast spaceship opening and closing to allow a continual stream of materials to flow in and out. And then if we were to enter in through one of these openings, we would find ourselves in a world of supreme technology and bewildering complexity. And then he asks a question. Dr. Denton says this. He says, is it really credible 
that random processes like chance could have constructed a reality like this, the smallest element of which is a uh, functional protein or gene, and it's complex beyond our own creative capacities. A reality which is the very opposite of chance. Uh, a reality which excels or goes beyond in every sense anything ever produced by the intelligence of man. And again, catch the question, does it make sense to think that complexity happened by chance? A complexity is like beyond our space shuttle? I mean, beyond anything we've ever invented? And we're saying, oh yeah, it's just, it just happened. You know, we, we don't know. Just it evolved. It's just there. He's going, no, no, no. That doesn't make sense. And then you say, okay, Dr. Denton, what's the answer? He goes, I don't know. Well, I think we have an answer. I think there's an intelligent designer who cared a lot about life and designed it with incredible wisdom and intelligence. And I think our hearts tell us that's true. I think we know, unless we let someone talk us out of it and go, yeah, 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 I know it overwhelmingly looks that way, but here's why you shouldn't believe that. Well, slow down and pay attention to what you know intuitively. Design points to a designer. Let me go on to our second arrow. Try not to be overwhelmed by the beauty of my artwork, by the way. It's, I know it's stunning, but... Uh, all right, the next arrow... Oops, jumped. says that fine-tuning in the universe points to an intentional fine-tuner. <clears throat> fine-tuning. What are you talking about, fine-tuning? Well, in, in some ways, this is argument number one <clears throat> on steroids. Uh, this is design like beyond imagination. Because what this is is not just beauty in nature or, or not just you know, some complexity. This is a kind of complexity that has been dialed in, as one scientist said, to a razor's edge of precision so that life could exist. And, you know, if things weren't just so, just the way they are, we wouldn't be here to talk about it. And it's not just in one area. It's in multiple areas. And if you look at the book, Confident Faith, that I, uh, I'm drawing a lot of this from, um, when I wrote that, you know, it was estimated there were like 40 or 50 of these areas that were dialed in just the way they need to be. And uh, I'm going to stick with that number for today, 50, as I used in the book. But I, since then, have spoken at conferences with other, you know, philosophers of science and, and uh, apologists and so on. And there was one guy, he's just like, all he does is science. And he heard my talk, and, and afterwards we're talking about it, and I said, am I on safe ground? Is there really 50 of these factors that, as I described... He said, uh, well, Mark, you're a little behind on this. I said, really? What? And he said, there's now about 200 of these. So whatever I'm about to say, multiply it times four, and the argument just keeps getting stronger because the more they learn scientifically, the more of these factors are that are fine-tuned and dialed in perfectly so that life can exist. And they're all independent of each other. Now, let me describe it uh, Lee Strobel, my ministry partner who wrote The Case for Christ, wrote a book called The Case for Creator. 
he uses an illustration. I don't know if he came up with it or got it somewhere else, but I think it's very helpful. And that is, if there's like 50 of these areas, uh, if you can just imagine, you're looking up in the sky, and there's 50 huge dials in the sky. And if you have kind of an engineer kind of mind, you can imagine a huge metal dial with tiny little markings all the way around it. And, and these, each of these dials have been clicked in just where they had to be, fine-tuned. And if you bump one with your elbow, we're toast. Or we freeze to death. It's because they have to be perfect. And all 50 of these are independent of all the other ones. So they all had to be independently dialed in just the way they are. And guess what? They're, they're right where they had to be or we wouldn't be talking about it. Okay? How did that happen? What, what dialed in these dials to just the place they needed to be? Did that happen by chance? And now that takes a lot of faith, I think. Um, you know, this idea of faith, it's believing something that you have reason to believe, but you don't have absolute proof. That's what we do as Christians. We have good reasons to believe in Christ, to believe the gospel. We don't have absolute proof, but guess what? Neither does the other side. And in fact, they want to believe that this fine-tuning all happened just perfectly, and they have no idea how it got there, but they believe it you know, just by chance anyway. That's a blind leap of faith, friends. And let me just give you an example. Let's uh, dial in on one dial, okay? Um, and I mentioned Lee Strobel when he was doing the case for a creator book. He interviewed a guy named Dr. Robin Collins, who spent his life studying these dials, okay? This guy is an expert on it. And uh, he said to Dr. Uh, Robin Collins, he said, could you just give us one example? Give me an example I can put in the book that you know, kind of helps these, these astronomical odds against it happening, kind of puts it, you know, in, in terms that we can understand. And he said, sure, I'd love to do that. He said, let's, let's talk about this one, the cosmological constant, which, if you want a definition of what that is, it's the energy density of empty space. Do you realize there are scientists that spend their lifetime studying the energy density of empty space? God bless them, huh? Um, but he said, That's, let's talk about this one. And he goes on to describe, and this is a quote from the case for a creator. He says, well, there's, there's no way we can really comprehend it. He said, the fine tuning has been uh, conservatively estimated to be at least one part in a hundred million, billion, 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 billion. That would be a 10 followed by 53 zeros. And I love this. He goes, and that's inconceivably precise. <laughs> no kidding. Um, so here, here's, you know, for those of you that aren't lovers of math, like all of us probably, um, what he's saying is the odds of this one dial in the sky being perfectly calibrated the way it is, the odds of that happening on its own by chance are 1 to 10 to the 53rd power. That makes the lottery look like a sure bet by comparison. I mean, these are phenomenal odds. When Lee speaks on this, he goes, you know, there's a, there's a scientific term for this, and that is, ain't going to happen. Uh, it just doesn't get that way on its own. 
But then Dr. Collins went on and he said, let me, uh, you know, give you a, you asked for a real life description. He said, that would be like, he said, if you were in outer space and you were going to throw a dart, one single dart at random at a target on earth. He said, the odds of that, you know, one to 50, uh, 10 to the 53rd power would be like successfully hitting a bullseye on earth that is a trillionth of a trillionth of an inch in uh, in diameter, which, as he said, is less than the size of one solitary atom. So here's what this means. You're in outer space, you get one dart. You know how hard it is to hit the middle of a... It's hard enough to hit the target at all, right, With, with a dart. But now you're out in outer space, and you get one throw, and from outer space, you've got to hit a target smaller than an atom. Good luck. Your odds of doing it are 1 to 10 to the 53rd power. And that dial is right where it had to be. The target hit the bullseye because someone was guiding the, the, the dart. And then you say, okay, that's one, and now we've got 49 more dials to talk about. And some of those have worse odds of happening by chance. And... That's my 50 dials. There may be another 150 of those. And you go, okay, how much faith does it take to believe this all just kind of happened? A lot of faith, a lot of blind faith. Why don't we just go with what's natural and say, when something's fine-tuned, there's probably a fine-tuner. And I would say one who cared a lot behind all of that. Let me go on to a third arrow. And this one says that information encoded into DNA points to a divine encoder. You're like, what? Well, let's talk about this for a minute. We all hear about DNA, and it's used in, you know, uh, research, you know, when they're trying to figure out if someone committed a crime, and they're looking for DNA evidence. But let's get more fundamentally to what it is. DNA is information encoded into every cell of of everybody. Every living being has DNA, and each one has unique instructions and kind of a guidebook to how it all works and works together. But let's just talk about human DNA. Do you know that scientists spent decades trying to map out the sequence, the information in every cell in our bodies. Go back to that cell in our wrist that we were looking at through a microscope. It's not just incredibly uh, complex. It contains these double helix uh, functional uh, DNA cells that are, are, it's hard to even describe it, but there's information encoded into the DNA that is unbelievably rich with information, and it's what makes our bodies work right. So I want to give you another quote on this, Um, if I find my right page. There we go. A different Dr. Collins, who became famous because he was the leader of the whole Human Genome Project, considered the Mount Everest of, of scientific research. And some of you may remember back when Carter was president, not Carter, um, uh, Clinton was president. Uh, He went on with this Dr. Collins, and they made this announcement 
Uh, and the way Clinton described it, he said, the scientists have finally discovered the language with which God created life. It's like, what? Well, they had mapped out the complete human genetic code. And uh, this Dr. Collins wrote a book called The Language of God, and I want to quote from it. He says this about the information in DNA. He says, this newly revealed text, interesting word, text, now, this newly revealed text was three billion letters long and written in a strange and cryptographic four-letter code. Such is the amazing complexity of the information carried within each cell of the human body that a live reading of that code, like if we want to just read it out loud, we need more than three services to do this, Okay. He said, if you want to read it out loud at a rate of three letters per second, sounds like a scientist, doesn't it? Um, Guess how long it would take you. And this is without coffee breaks, no restroom breaks, no napping. We got to keep reading. We're going through the genetic code. And you go day and night, it will take you 31 years to read the amount of information in every cell of your body. And then I love this. He says, and oh, by the way, you want to print it out on your computer printer? He said, if you use normal font and normal bond paper and so forth, put that in your printer, load it up, hope you have some good toner cartridges. Uh, he says, if you do that and bind those pages together into a book, he said, that book, when it's all put together, will result in a tower, the height of the Washington Monument. The book with the information in one cell in your body is going to be the height of the Washington Monument. And I had to look that up because I just got to know this stuff. And I looked it up. That is 555 feet high. And that's like what? Like a 40-story building. And that's just the book of information in one cell in your body. And I just want to pause and go, what kind of mind does it take to put that much information in every cell of our bodies. I mean, this is a mind-blowing intelligence. And somehow he encoded it all. He makes our bodies work, and we would not function. You know what happens when there's a genetic defect or something? It affects our ability to function in health, and if it's bad enough, we can't even live. And yet, God encoded all this. I believe God did this. I don't think this happened by chance. let me just quote Lee Strobel one more time. He has a great illustration. He says, you know, this, this is information. This is not just a pattern. This is not just beauty of nature or something. He said, it's like this. You go out early in the morning on a beach. And he said, you know, you may see ripples in the sand that the wind made or the waves made. And they can be beautiful. They can be interesting. But waves on a beach or, or ripples in the sand, that's not information. It's just beauty. Nature can account for that, okay? But he says, let's say you walk further down the beach and you you say, what's this? And you see there's a heart. And the the heart shape is like this and there's an arrow going through the heart and drawn in the middle it says, John loves Mary. He said, you see that, you instantly know that's information. You know, you don't look at this and go, wow, the wind and waves were creative last night, right? Right? No, you look at it and you go, there's a, you know, that's a message. There's a messenger behind this. 
Probably a guy named John. Maybe a little wishful thinking too, whatever. But that is information. And so again, if, if we know something like John loves Mary is an encoded message from a messenger, how much more a three billion letter long four part cryptographic code that takes 31 years to read night and day. That is incredible information and it points to an incredible informer. That is, it's a computer program and programs require programmers. So use whatever language you want. This is powerful information pointing to a very wise intelligent source. I want to give you one more uh, scientifically based argument, and uh, this is one of my favorites. Reason number four says that the origins of the universe point to or indicate that there's a divine originator. In other words, universes don't just happen. I mean, things don't just pop into existence out of nothing. We, we intuitively know that. And the way this is written and defined, and it was really, this argument was kind of resurrected and popularized by uh, a well-known apologist who was one of my professors and uh, kind of a mentor, a man named Dr. William Lane Craig, one of the greatest defenders of Christianity on the planet, still living today, um, lives in Atlanta. Um, and he describes this, he has a long term for it, it's the Kalam cosmological argument, if you like impressive terms. But he simplifies it like this. He says it's really a three-part argument. The first part says, whatever has a beginning has a cause. And just stop and think about, about that a little bit. You know, if, if you walk in the room and there's a ball on the table and you say, where did that ball come from? You don't accept an answer if someone says, oh, that's always been there. It's like, no, no, this, balls have ball makers, balls have beginnings. It, it's, it's not like a self-existent eternal ball. Where did it come from? We intuitively know that whatever has a beginning has a cause, and the kinds of contingent things we see in the world have beginnings. Cars have car makers and so on. Well, what if the ball's just a lot bigger and it's the universe? Universes need something behind them, right? But whatever has a beginning has a cause. Second part of the argument is the universe had a beginning. And this is almost universally accepted by scientists, believer or non-believer in matters of faith. Um, you know, so Stephen Hawking talks about the grand design, and he talks about the, the way that the whole universe began, and that even time itself began with this cataclysmic event a long time ago. And so, whatever has a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning... And the conclusion of the argument is, therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, I want to talk about, I'll come back to what that cause is. But let me just go back one more time. The universe had a beginning. You understand what I'm kind of indicating here is science pretty much universally accepts this event called a Big Bang. And, and what a lot of us don't understand is what exactly they're saying and a lot of us get defensive as Christians because, like, I don't believe in some big bang. I think God created. Well, do you think it might have made a little noise? 
Um, these, friends, these are not enemy concepts. What, what scientists have admitted when they talk about the Big Bang is that there was a, an inception point when the universe began. That's, we call that creation. And, um, you know, they, now they talk about how long ago and so, but here's, here, I, I don't like to focus on how long and that stuff. I like to focus on what they're saying. What they're saying is based on uh, the, their, their studies, and especially the, you know, through the telescope, they saw what's called the Doppler effect, the red shift. And what that means is when you see a red shift, it means things are moving apart and the universe is expanding. And they realized all this about 100 years ago and it was debated and a lot of scientists, including Einstein, resisted it because they knew what it implied. It implied there's a beginning, and as soon as you admit there's a beginning, you, you, then you have to ask, what, who was the beginner? How, how did this get going? But, but based on the fact that it's going that way, it's expanding, they rolled the tapes backwards and said, that means at one point it was together. And what scientists believe is that there was a point where it was all, the entire physical universe was the singularity which is basically, it's a metaphysical concept. It's this, this little tiny point of nothing, which has everything in it, and it's all compressed together. The, the entire, everything we know of the universe was in this little point sitting there. And then for reasons they can't explain and don't understand, boom, there's a universe. And it expanded at phenomenal rates. And why, who knows? But that's what happened. And now they all say, oh, that's how we got our universe, and we believe this. And it's like, and that's, you're calling that science? I mean, it, it sounds a little like a miracle to me. It, it, it sounds suspiciously similar to a verse I read that said, in the beginning, boom, God created the heavens and the earth. And so again, uh, a lot of leading philosophers of science who are Christians, including William Lane Craig, are saying, the Big Bang, that's a really good description of what Genesis tells us happened. And I agree. And you just look at it, what, what's the cause of this? Well, let's go back to the argument. Whatever has a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning, therefore the universe has a cause. But what do we know about that cause? Well, first of all, um, it had to be powerful, Right? What kind of power can create a universe out of nothing in a nanosecond? Incredible power. Um, but, but get this. Yes, Stephen Hawking or any of these guys, that's where time began. So that means the cause of the universe is outside of time. What do we call that? It's eternal. Guess what else? The cause of the physical universe can't be physical itself. So the cause of the universe is a non-physical entity. Anyone got a word for that? Well, that... More, more generically, it's, if it's not physical, I would call it spiritual. So here's what science is telling us, that there's a spiritual, eternal, powerful source behind the universe. And let me add a couple more words got to be really smart. Because you know what? Go back to the argument about fine-tuning. Those 50 dials had to be dialed into a razor's edge of precision 
in a fraction of a nanosecond. It all happened when the explosion happened, when the, the universe was created or it came into being. That all had to be fine-tuned right from the get-go. So the cause of the universe is spiritual, eternal, powerful, wise. I might call it omniscient. And I would add loving because look at the beauty. Uh, we could have just had shades of gray. We could have just had ugly. We got beauty. We had sunsets. We got, you know, beautiful sunrises and sunsets and hummingbirds and, and you know, flowers and, and beauty. What a caring, loving being behind the universe. And I, I just want to say, doesn't that sound suspiciously similar to a guy you read about in a book called The Bible? And I just, I need to conclude and say, you know, and this is using some classic terms. What I've just described to you is out of what's called the book of nature. And the more we learn, and guess what? Science is not the enemy of faith. Science is one of our greatest allies because the book of nature is telling us increasingly, the more we learn, the same things that the book of Revelation, the Bible, tells us about a loving, powerful, eternal, spiritual being who's not just some distant deity, but a loving father who made us. But before I end, I need to go back. You know, I showed you that picture of the bus at the beginning. Um, and I think that's kind of funny. These atheists did this sign. You know, there's probably no God. Get over it. Well, William Lane Craig, the guy that did this uh, argument. He, he debates atheists all over the place. I've hosted a couple of his debates. Uh, he, he, he debates the smartest guys in the world and wins because the evidence is on our side. And, well, he was invited a number of years ago to Oxford, and uh, they were trying to get doc, uh, Dr. Richard Dawkins, who I quoted, the famous atheist, the blind watchmaker guy, uh, Oxford professor, they wanted him to debate William Lane Craig because Craig's already debated most of the famous atheists in the world. And they're going, why don't we finally have the clash of the titans here? Let's take Christendom's greatest debater. Let's take the most famous atheist. Let's get them together. The problem is Dawkins refuses to debate Craig. And what's funny about that is Dawkins will debate bishops and pastors and He's debated some other smart Christians, but for some reason, he's, he's, it looks like he's scared to debate Craig. And I just got to tell you, there's a website that keeps track of all of the contradictory reasons that Dawkins has given for why he won't debate Craig. There's like, last I looked, it was about a dozen reasons that don't even make sense. They're contradicting each other. But one way or another, Craig was coming right there to Oxford. It's like, just, you know, walk out of your house and come over here and debate him. Because he thinks we're fools. He, 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 Dawkins once said, if you believe in God, uh, you're, probably, you're, you're you know, deluded, you're probably confused, and you might be mentally ill if you believe in God. So, nice guy, right? Um, so, let's debate William Lane Craig, the Christian, and Dawkins said no. And he refused to the point where other atheists started saying, what a chicken, this guy's a coward. This and they were going after him. And I just thought you'd get a kick out of this. The Christians over there, they remembered years earlier where the atheists had bought signs and put them on the buses. 
And they said, we could buy signs and put them on buses. Uh, Dawkins doesn't want to debate Craig. Okay, we're going to put some signs on buses, and I thought you'd get a kick out of seeing what they put up. <laughs> There's probably no Dawkins. Probably doesn't even exist. We're not sure, but we, we don't think the guy's real. Um, so stop worrying. <laughs> they totally mimic the signs. And then the hard part to read in the yellow says, uh, but come and enjoy October 25th at the Sheldonian Theater, which is the famous theater at Oxford University, where Dr. Craig came, and they actually set it up like a debate. They had the two tables with the microphones and glasses of water, little signs, Dr. Dawkins, Dr. Craig, and it was like this open invitation. If you come, you can debate him. If you don't come, he's just going to refute your book. And he didn't come, and Craig refuted his book about uh, the uh, God delusion, it's called. And if you want to look at this up, you can look on YouTube and just look up Dr. William Lane Craig, Sheldonian Theater. Devastating talk and just dismantled the arguments Dawkins was using. But I thought you'd get a kick out of that. And I just uh, wanted to remind you, truth is on our side. And we do not have to be afraid of science. And we can look to the heavens, we can look through the telescope, we can look down through a microscope, Wherever we look, we see signs of our maker, signs of our creator, signs that the Bible is telling us the truth and that there is a loving father who made us, loves us, and wants to know us, and we can know him. And that's part one of our time together. Uh, we're going to come back and do part two. I do want to mention, I, I, I mentioned that I'm drawing a lot of this information. It's out of the book on the left, Confident Faith. You see the red arrows there. It gives all 20 of these arguments. Uh, that's kind of my offense. My defense is on the right. That's where I answer 10 of the top objections. That's kind of a foretaste of what we're going to do tonight at 6 o'clock when you come with all your friends. Come back. We'll, we've got lots of seats. Come back. And if you're interested in these books, they're in the back, and the, the guys are having a sale on those. And those are for you to reinforce your faith, but they're especially to give to friends who have doubts and questions and objections to help them see that Christianity makes sense. So, God bless. I'll see you part two in a little bit.